welcome back to Weird on the Rocks. This is a podcast that explores the weird, unusual, strange, and unexplained, all while getting our drink on. I'm your host, Katie. Before I get into the episode, I want to say thank you again to everyone who's been listening to and supporting the show. It really means the world to me. I'm having so much fun with this, and I hope you're all enjoying it too. Right now, as I record this on March 24th, I have four episodes out and we are at 397 listens, so almost to 400. It's really exciting. I know it's not all about the numbers and those numbers are very abysmal compared to a lot of other podcasts, but it's really fun seeing the numbers go up and I'm just having a great time with it. I want to read an iTunes review real quick. This one is from Sandy Tufts, who she actually has her own podcast called meet my ghost. Sandy says, cool concept and interesting stories. Great listen. Keep it coming. Thank you, Sandy. That really means a lot, especially from a fellow podcaster. If you guys want to support the podcast, please subscribe in whatever app you're listening on, write and review on iTunes, and follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Weird on the Rocks Podcast, or visit my website at www.weirdontherocks.weebly.com. So I am really excited about today's episode. It is going to be the start of a three-part series covering the Zodiac Killer. The Zodiac Killer is one of the most well-known American serial killers. I've talked to some friends who aren't into true crime at all, and most of them have heard of him. I don't know if I would say the Zodiac is my favorite serial killer, because that sounds kind of weird to some people, but... He's definitely the most interesting and intriguing serial killer to me. And if you're into true crime like I am, that probably doesn't sound weird to you at all. I watched the David Fincher film Zodiac when it came out in 2007. And I remember feeling really creeped out and on edge about the fact that this guy was never caught. I remember saying to my friends, um, this guy might still be out there. And because the killings took place in the Bay Area, which is about five hours from where I live in Eureka, I remember kind of fixating on the idea that he could live here and that maybe I've even seen him without knowing it. Even to this day, when I go camping or out in the woods, I feel like maybe he's out there, as weird as that sounds. Even before I started a podcast, I spent a lot of my free time researching the Zodiac I've kind of nerded out on it. I've watched a lot of documentaries and read a lot of books and kind of got sucked into the black hole that is Reddit. And I really love hearing other people's thoughts and theories on this case. It's never ending. The more I look, the more information I find. I even visited the exact location of one of the Zodiac murders in San Francisco last year. And that was really cool to see the exact place it happened, stand on the street, look at the homes. The David Fincher Zodiac movie has also become probably my favorite movie. And this movie is cinematically so beautiful. It's so well done. David Fincher, the director, also directed um, Fight Club and Seven, Gone Girl. So he's a wonderful director. But if you do watch this movie, I know it's, it's fairly well known. Take it with a grain of salt. It's really entertaining, but Some of it is fabricated for entertainment sakes, obviously. And the book that the movie is based off of was written by Robert Graysmith, who worked at the San Francisco Chronicle during the Zodiac killings. 
and he wrote the book in a somewhat biased way and wants to paint himself in a positive light and the movie was based off of his writing so keep that in mind as well my husband actually loves to tease me about the zodiac movie because when we can't decide on a movie to watch he'll say uh anything but the zodiac because that's always my first offer so last year through the help of ancestry dna sites Joseph D'Angelo was arrested as the Golden State Killer, another elusive serial killer that was actually active around the same time as the Zodiac. Since his arrest and capture, I, as well as lots of other armchair detectives on the internet out there, have been hoping that something similar might happen for the Zodiac case. In May of last year, the Vallejo Police Department actually decided to reopen the Zodiac case in hopes that new technology such as the use of genealogy databases like 23andMe and Ancestry.com might uncover new suspects or give new information on old ones. So in the case of the Golden State Killer, somebody that is related to Joseph D'Angelo turned their DNA into a database. I think it was 23andMe, and they were able to compare it with DNA from one of his crime scenes and find him, and he is old and he was just in his house and they caught him and it's so satisfying to know that justice will be served in some way and I hope that something like that can happen for the Zodiac case. I really want this series to be as detailed and thorough as possible and because there is so much information out there and because I want it to be more of an in-depth story I'm going to break it up into three separate episodes. There is just way too much to cover for me to feel like I would do it justice in just one episode. The first two episodes will cover the murders, the victims, and the letters the Zodiac sent to the San Francisco Chronicle. The third episode will discuss the different suspects there have been throughout the years. These episodes will be told as more of a story, and I won't be adding in my own thoughts until the end when I discuss the suspects. I hope that even if you're not particularly interested in the Zodiac, or if you know nothing about the case, that this will still be entertaining, thought-provoking, and might even encourage you to do your own research. I've actually gotten a couple people on the Zodiac bandwagon, as strange as that sounds. I had my mom watch the movie, and she called me with all these questions, and we talked about the Zodiac for about an hour. Before we get going, I want to share this week's beverage of choice. In honor of the David Fincher Zodiac movie, I am drinking an Aqua Velva. In the movie, this is the drink of choice of cartoonist Robert Graysmith, played by the dreamy Jake Gyllenhaal. I love him. Robert Graysmith supposedly was kind of a square and his colleagues referred to him as Boy Scout. And because he didn't drink much, he liked really sweet drinks. So the Aqua Velva consists of vodka, gin, lemon lime soda, and blue curacao. It's called Aqua Velva because it is bright blue due to the blue curacao and it resembles the aftershave of the same name. It's actually really pretty and very tropical looking and tastes kind of like orange soda. I didn't know that blue curacao was an orange liqueur, but it's really good and it's still strong because it has vodka and gin in it. This drink is right up my alley because I love sweet drinks and I'm also one of those rare weirdos who loves gin. I could take shots of gin. I know some of you are probably puking in your mouths right now just thinking about that, but I love it. Um, I'll be putting up a picture of the drink and the ingredients on all my social platforms for you to see. All right, well, let's get into it. Cheers, and let's get weird. 
The Zodiac Killer is one of, if not the, most elusive and mysterious serial killers in the history of the United States. He terrorized the Bay Area of California in the late 60s and early 70s, and even with copious evidence, case files, and over 2,500 suspects interviewed, law officials seemed no closer to finding the true identity of the clever and evil man who coined himself the Zodiac Killer. On the night of October 30th, 1966, Long before anyone had heard of the Zodiac Killer, 18-year-old Sherry Jo Bates left a note for her father that read, Dad, went to the RCC library. Bates, an honor student who dreamed of being an airline stewardess, would often meet with friends in the library to study. The next morning on Halloween of 1966, her Volkswagen Beetle was found abandoned in the Riverside City College parking lot, and her body was found nearby between two abandoned homes. Police believe that while Sherry Jo was in the library, her killer gained access to her car's engine and removed the distributor coil and condenser and disconnected the middle wire of the distributor. He most likely waited for her to try and start the car, then offered her a ride. Sherry Jo was a strong and athletic girl, and a man's paint-spattered watch found at the scene indicates that she fought back hard. There were also several witness reports of hearing an awful scream around 10.30 p.m. that night. The official medical report showed that Jerry Joe had been kicked in the head and stabbed in the chest twice and stabbed in the left shoulder blade once with a short blade. She had numerous cuts on her face and three slashes on her throat, almost decapitating her. Along with the paint spattered watch, which was later tested and proved to be common exterior house paint, there was also a shoe print from a men's size 10 military boot. Sherry Joe's body showed no indication of sexual assault and no personal belongings of hers were missing. One month after the murder, the local police and newspaper received letters from the supposed killer titled The Confession. It read, Miss Bates was stupid. She went to the slaughter like a lamb. I am not sick. I am insane. The letter ended with the line, Bates had to die. There will be more. And was signed with the single letter Z. Within 24 hours of the murder, over 75 people had been interviewed, and law officials zeroed in on a young man who attended Riverside City College with Bates, although they never had substantial evidence to move forward with the case. At the time, the death of Sherry Jo Bates was the only unsolved homicide in Riverside County's history. It would be two more years before law officials connected her death to the Zodiac. Two years later, on the night of December 20th, 1968, in Vallejo, California, 17-year-old David Faraday and 16-year-old Betty Lou Jensen were going on their first date. Both David and Betty Lou were studious and hardworking students with spotless reputations. After months of David pursuing Betty Lou, she finally agreed to a date. Wanting to look his best for her, David wore a long-sleeved light blue shirt, brown corduroy pants, and a beige sport coat. He also brought a small bottle of Banaka breath drops in his pocket. David borrowed his parents' 1961 Rambler and picked Betty Lou up at her home. Betty Lou, who supposedly told her sister she was nervous for the date, was wearing a purple mini dress and black T-strap shoes. 
telling their parents that they were attending a church Christmas carol concert at the local high school, they actually ended up on Lake Herman Drive, a popular Lover's Lane area for local teens that law officials warned kids about for being a dangerous area. Later, when interviewed by police, several witnesses would recall seeing a white hardtop 1960s Chevrolet Impala parked near Lake Herman Road that night. Despite it being a popular destination for other love-struck teens, David and Betty Lou were alone. After about an hour, another car came down the road and parked about 10 feet away. Armed with a 22 caliber rifle, footprints from the crime scene indicated the killer started behind the car, first shooting out the right rear window, then the left rear tire before coming around to the front of the car. David and Betty Lou scrambled out of the vehicle's right passenger door. Betty Lou managed to run away, but David did not. He was killed by a single bullet to the head, and the position of his body shows that he was most likely standing by the right rear wheel. Betty Lou began to run toward the road, but did not get far, and was shot five times on the right side of her back. She was found only 30 feet from the car's rear bumper. The shot pattern found on Betty Lou's body and precision and distance between each bullet wound, combined with the challenge of hitting a moving target in the dark, made police believe that the killer was experienced with firearms. At around 11.15 p.m., Mrs. Stella Borges, who lived on a ranch on Lake Herman Road, was driving when she saw the car with David Faraday's body lying lifeless next to it. Mrs. Borges sped toward Interstate 680, where she found a Benicia patrol car. She began to honk and flash her lights and eventually got the police officer to pull over, where she proceeded to tell him about the gruesome scene she had just discovered. Despite numerous law enforcement agencies working together and a reward fund created by students at David and Betty Lou's high school, the case remains cold. As Robert Graysmith stated in his book Zodiac, there were no witnesses, no motives, and no suspects. Darlene Farron, a pretty, outgoing 22-year-old who was the mother to a baby girl, had been telling friends that she was scared of somebody for several months. Darlene was a waitress at Terry's restaurant and was very popular with the male customers. Despite being married to her second husband, Dean, there were rumors that Darlene was having multiple affairs and liked to do her fair share of partying while her husband was at work, partaking in alcohol and drug use. For months, Darlene had been acting nervous and paranoid, telling friends and co-workers that she was scared of a man. When pressed about the issue, Darlene would then dismiss it, reassuring those who cared about her that she was just being silly and not to worry. On numerous occasions, other employees at Terry's remember a stocky man who drove a white sedan staring at Darlene. The man made Darlene behave nervously, but when asked if the man should be kicked out of the restaurant, she would insist it wasn't necessary. On the night of February 26, 1969, the Farron 17-year-old babysitter Karen, who was taking care of their baby Dina, remembers seeing a white sedan parked across the street for hours. When she told Darlene about the incident, Darlene said, I guess he's checking up on me again. I heard he was back from out of state. He doesn't want anyone to know what I saw him do. I saw him murder someone. Karen asked Darlene what the mystery man's name was, and she said a short, common name that Karen later couldn't recall. On the night of May 24, 1969, Darlene had a painting party at the new house she and Dean had just purchased. Everyone was having a good time and helping paint, 
when a stocky man about five feet eight inches, overweight, wearing dark rimmed glasses, entered the home. Darlene's friend Linda remembers Darlene's behavior immediately changing. The man sat down at a chair without speaking to anyone. When Linda asked Darlene about the stranger, Darlene told her to leave him alone and not make a scene. Linda remembers the man stuck out from the crowd because, while they were in old jeans and shirts for painting, he was dressed very formally. Another friend of Darlene, Pam, recalls the man loudly asking Darlene where she was getting her money from. Everyone at the party was confused and uncomfortable, and eventually the heavyset stranger left. Pam remembers he had a short, common name. A month later, Pam, who was also a waitress at Terry's, recalls seeing the same man at the restaurant sitting at the counter, staring at Darlene, while eating strawberry shortcake. Pam says the man stayed for over two hours, then eventually left in a white sedan. On the night of July 4th, while Dean Farron was at work and a babysitter was watching baby Dina, Darlene called her friend Mike Majot, who was new to the area, and asked if he wanted to catch a movie. 19-year-old Mike had met Darlene when he and his twin brother David visited Terry's restaurant where Darlene worked, sparking a feud between the two brothers about who Darlene would be interested in. Supposedly, Mike and David made up a story about being wanted in Chicago for shooting someone, and that's why they moved to California. The story must have worked, because Darlene instantly became interested in the six-foot-two, dark-haired Mike. Almost immediately after picking Mike up from his parents' home on July 4th, he noticed a car with bright lights closely following them. We're being followed, Mike said to Darlene. Darlene stayed silent but accelerated her bronze Corvair and began taking random turns to lose the car. But the car kept up and eventually herded them into the parking lot of the Blue Rock Springs Golf Course, another popular lover's lane in Vallejo, only two miles from where Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday had been murdered. Before Darlene could properly park her car, she hit a log and stalled the engine. The other car pulled up parallel to them, less than 10 feet away. Mike later identified the car as a 58 or 59 Falcon with a male driver. He asked Darlene, Do you know who it is? To which Darlene responded, Oh, never mind. Don't worry about it. Then almost as soon as they had entered the parking lot, the car sped out and into the darkness, leaving Darlene and Mike breathing a sigh of relief. But less than five minutes later, the car returned, this time parking behind Darlene's Corvair. Immediately, a bright light beamed at them as the driver of the car exited, carrying a large flashlight with a handle. Mike told Darlene, Ugh, here come the cops. You better get your identification out, as he had once been to that same location and had a police officer question him. But instead of speaking to the young couple, the stranger pointed the light directly in the car, blinding Mike and Darlene. The next thing Mike remembers was a weird noise, and then his face was hot with blood. He had been shot in the face. Mike scrambled into the back seat and was then shot in the knee. The attacker then shot Darlene nine times, hitting her in both arms and her back. Mike Majot would later tell police he believes the gun had a silencer on it because the sound was muffled. The man turned and walked away when Mike let out a loud cry of agony. The attacker stopped and slowly turned around. And for the first time, Mike was able to see the profile of his face. He described him as stocky with a very large face. He was not wearing glasses and seemed to be between 26 and 30 years old. Hair that was worn in a military crew cut style was about 5'8 inches tall and was wearing a windbreaker. The stranger came closer 
leaned into the Corvair's window and shot Mike and Darlene two more times before walking away. Mike opened the door and fell out into the dirt. His entire jawbone and tongue had been ripped apart and he couldn't call out for help. Almost 30 minutes later, a car of teenagers looking for a place to set off 4th of July fireworks drove upon the scene. They continued to drive through the parking lot when they heard a muffled scream and stopped to see Mike Majot on the ground. All three exited their vehicle and came to his aid. Are you all right? They asked. I'm shot. Mike was able to stammer out. And the girl shot too. Get a doc. Deborah, one of the teenagers, drove home and phoned the police, saying, Two persons were shot at the east side of the main parking lot at Blue Rock Springs. Detective Sergeant John Lynch and his partner, Sergeant Ed Rust, reported to the scene, and an ambulance was called. Majot was really in great pain, said Lynch. As Rust and Lynch assisted Mike, they noticed something odd. On a hot July night, he was wearing three pairs of pants, three sweaters, a long-sleeved shirt, and a t-shirt. Both officers recognized Darlene, who was lying in the front seat. Lots of cops knew her and used to stop in at the coffee shop out there where she worked, said Lynch. But I never talked to her. In fact, her family lives just down the street from my house. She liked to run in the ocean. She'd take off her shoes and stockings and just run through the surf. She dated a lot of officers. Apparently, she was the type of person who liked policemen. As the officers began to draw a chalk outline of Mike's body, he opened his mouth, blood pouring out, and whispered, A white man drove up in a car, got out, walked up to the car, shined flashlight inside, started shooting. Can you give me a description? asked Russ. Mike responded, Young, heavy set, light tan car. At exactly 12.40 a.m., only two minutes after Darlene Farron was officially pronounced dead in the ambulance, a call from a Vallejo payphone was made to the Vallejo Police Department. Switchboard operator Nancy Slover answered. A man was on the other end, with a voice that was soft but forceful, and sounded rehearsed, as if he was reading from a script. I want to report a double murder, said the stranger. If you will go one mile east on Columbus Parkway to the public park, you will find two kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9 millimeter Luger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. When the man said goodbye, his voice became deeper and taunting. At 12.47 a.m., the call was traced to a payphone booth at Joe's Union Station, directly in front of the Vallejo Police Department and within eyesight of Dean and Darlene Farron's home. Three weeks later, on July 31, 1969, a letter addressed, Please Rush to the Editor, arrived at the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper. It read, Dear Editor, this is the killer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July near the golf course in Vallejo. To prove I killed them, I shall state some facts which only I and the police know. Christmas. 1. Brand name of Ammo Super X. 2. 10 shots were fired. 3. The boy was on his back with feet to the car. 4. The girl was on her right side feet to the west. 4th of July. 1. Girl was wearing patterned slacks. 2. The boy was also shot in the knee. 3. Brand name of ammo was Western. Here is part of a cipher. The other two parts of this cipher are being mailed to the editors of the Vallejo Times and San Francisco Examiner. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. In this cipher is my identity. If you do not print the cipher by the afternoon of Fry, 1st of August, 1969, I will go on a kill rampage Fry night. I will cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend. The letter was signed with a crosshair symbol. On the same day, the Vallejo Times and San Francisco Examiner received the same letter, each with the other third of the cipher. 
The complete cipher totaled 24 lines of 17 symbols each, including weather, Greek, navy, astrological, and Morse code symbols. The letter included many grammatical errors and unique characteristics, including the word Christmas having two S's and the abbreviation for Friday spelled F-R-Y instead of F-R-I. All three newspapers printed their portion of the ciphers per request of the writer, but also to implore the public to try and solve the puzzle. And the entire cipher was immediately sent to government agencies for deciphering. 100 miles south of San Francisco in Salinas, California, history teacher Donald Hardin opened the San Francisco Chronicle on a lazy Sunday morning and decided to take a whack at solving the cipher, starting with his knowledge that the most common letter in the English language was an E and then a T, and the most common double letter was the double L, he got to work. Eventually, his wife Betty June joined. She assumed that since the killer was writing a letter to boast about his kills, he was probably egotistical enough to start the letter by talking about himself. After two days, they cracked the cipher that even the CIA, FBI, and Naval Intelligence could not solve. The letter read, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise, and they have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collection of slaves for afterlife. While this first code was still being deciphered, Vallejo Police Chief Jack Stiltz had publicly criticized the author, saying there wasn't enough information in the first letter to confirm that he was really the killer. He was listening because only four days after receiving the first letter, a second one arrived at the San Francisco Examiner, and this time, the mysterious killer had a name. Dear Editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. In answer to your asking for more details about the good time I had in Vallejo, I shall be very happy to supply even more material. By the way, are the police having a good time with the code? If not, tell them to cheer up. When they do crack it, they will have me. On the 4th of July, I did not open the car door. The window was rolled down already. The boy was originally sitting in the front seat when I began firing. When I fired the first shot at his head, he leaped backwards at the same time, thus spoiling my aim. He ended up on the back seat, then the floor, and back thrashing out very violently with his legs. That's how I shot him in the knee. I did not leave the scene of the killing with squealing tires and racing engine as described in the Vallejo papers. I drove away slowly, as to not draw attention to my car. The man who told police my car was brown was a Negro, about 40 to 45, rather shabby dressed. I was in this phone booth having some fun with the Vallejo cop when he was walking by. When I hung the phone up, the damn thing began to ring, and that drew attention to me and my car. Last Christmas in that episode, the police were wondering as to how I could shoot and hit my victims in the dark. They did not openly state this, but implied this by saying it was a well-lit night, and I could see silhouettes on the horizon. Bullshit. That area surrounded by high hills and trees. What I did was tape a small pencil flashlight to the barrel of my gun. If you notice in the center of the beam of light, if you aim at a wall or ceiling, you will see a black or dark spot in the center of the circle, about three to six inches across. When taped to a gun barrel, the bullet will strike exactly in the center of the black dot in the light. The letter ended with the same crosshairs symbol.
Well, that's going to be it for today's episode. In two weeks, I will be releasing the second episode in the series, which will cover the rest of the victims of the Zodiac Killer, as well as more letters he sent to the police and the media. Again, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Weird on the Rocks Podcast and at www.weirdontherocks.weebly.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, cheers and stay weird. Weird.